Bill, thanks again. Thanks for playing in both services today. And great music and a great time to be in the Lord's house. Amen. If you have your Bibles, let's open to the book of Exodus this morning. Exodus chapter number 32. And we're going to read some portion of chapter 32 into chapter 33 this morning. Exodus chapter 32. When I come to the end of a series, as we did last week, we finished up the book of Mark. I always feel like we're kind of in a bit of a limbo of where to go from here. You know, what do you do next and, and what's the next thing? And, uh, and then I've made it a practice through the years to just take a little break from a series and just go to a couple of different maybe favorite passages of mine to preach from. And, uh, and then our plan is in the month of May, we're going to launch a series through the book of Colossians and uh, look at the sufficiency of Christ uh, through the book of Colossians and excited about that. And this, this will be the first time we've done a series through an epistle here um, on Sunday morning since I've been your pastor. And so I'm looking forward to that. And so we'll go through the book of Colossians together here shortly. But for the next couple of weeks, I'm just going to be taking uh, select passages of scripture that have been something to me in my walk as I've grown and I think will be an encouragement to you as well. And if you uh, find your place in Exodus uh, 32, let's stand together in honor of the Word of God. We're going to begin reading in verse number 31, and we'll read to chapter 33, verse number 4. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made themselves for themselves gods of gold, but now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. The Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. And the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt to the land which I swear to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your offspring, I will give it. I will send an angel before you and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. But I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. Let's pray together. Father, we ask you to add your blessing to the reading of the word of God this morning. Uh, Father, I pray that you would give me clarity of thought, Lord, as we walk through this text of Scripture this morning. Lord, may our hearts be in tune with you. May our eyes uh, and ears be open to receive the message of your word. Holy Spirit of God, do a work in our hearts that only you can do. In the precious name of Jesus, we ask it all. Amen. You can be seated there, if you would. As we enter into this narrative account of the Old Testament, uh, I think it's important to give context to what is going on here. And one of my my frustrations, I think, with picking a text of scripture out of the Bible and preaching on that text is because by the nature of doing that, we have to lift it out of its context. And I want to make sure that we don't ever 
uh, rip it from its context, but keep it fit well into the picture of what God is trying to communicate. And so in, in the hopes of doing that, I give us a little bit of a, a run up to where we are, just as a verbal history of where we are for the nation of Israel, so that you can kind of connect the dots, and then we'll make the application from this text. But if you know the, the nation of Israel came from the man Abraham, who God called out of the Ur of Chaldees, and he called him into a land that he would show him. Abraham journeyed, and God blessed him at the age of 100 with a son named Isaac. Isaac was this promised child that would come and uh, would, through his seed, through Abraham's seed, Isaac, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And of course, all of that is pointing down the road to where Christ will come. And it is through this promise line that God is going to bring about redemption to the world. Isaac raises up and has a son named Jacob. And Jacob's name, through a course of events, is changed to Israel. God blesses Israel with 12 sons. Those 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. 12 families coming off of Israel's line. And then, of course, Joseph, if you remember the story of Joseph, how he was sold into slavery down into Egypt, and yet God used that to prepare provision for the remainder of Israel's family, and all of Israel was brought down into Egypt, and they were sustained because of Joseph's wisdom and God's providential care. And so they were given the opportunity to survive the famine because of what Joseph had done, but then after being in Egypt for some time, they were taken into captivity. And they were placed under hard bondage. And of course, they cried out to God, and God sent the deliverer to bring them out of the nation of Egypt. And this is where we pick up our account, is just after Moses has brought them up out of Egypt into the wilderness. And just a few weeks prior to what we're reading here, the nation of Egypt had endured the ten plagues that had come upon them, and God had literally brought the mightiest nation on the face of the earth to their knees. And he had done so without one chariot or one sword. Uh, and he brought them through the Red Sea and brings them into the promised land, or into the wilderness rather, on their journey to the promised land that God had for them. And so this is where we pick up our account. Moses has gone up onto the mountain to receive the law and God is giving him instruction. When we step into this story right now, we do not have a tabernacle. We do not have instructions for a tabernacle. We don't have the sacrifices yet. We don't have the priesthood organized yet. We have none of that. God has called a people out. He's called Moses to come and lead these people, and he's brought them into the wilderness, and now Moses is up on the mountain hearing what God would have to say to us and what he wants to say to the nation of Israel. And so when we pick up this account, we open in chapter number 32 and verse number 1, and here's what we see. And when the people saw Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods, who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And so what I want you to see is I'm just going to walk through this text today, and the first thing I want you to see is a very sinful commentary, a commentary of sinful acts that this nation of Israel perpetrates in. Now, they had received the message 
from God to wait. Moses had gone to the mountain to hear the message. And what is the first step into the role of idolatry? I think the first step here, as we see, is impatience. Look what he said. When they saw that he delayed to come down. They were impatient with God. And I believe that's exactly the first step for us to going into an idolatrous heart is when we are impatient with the plan and the timing of God. And what we do when God doesn't come through in our time, we begin to look for another God who'll do what we want to do. And we'll do it in our time. We want a God that will give us what we want now. Is that not anything described the culture that we live in today? It is a now culture, a fix it now culture, a satisfy me now culture. Everything is about the present. And we'll worship at whatever gives us what we want now. We don't want a God that says to us, wait. And here the nation of Israel is waiting on God and they become impatient. And what do they immediately do? They turn to another God. Give us something now. Give us what we want. So what do they do in verse number uh, two? So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in your ears and your wives and your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. And so all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation that said, tomorrow be a feast to the Lord. And so what do we see them doing? We see this sinful commentary going on, and they begin to say, here's what we're going to do. We're going to make this idol, and we're going to make a calf, and they craft the calf, and Aaron sees it, and he says, man, look at that. We're going to have a feast tomorrow, and Aaron is standing beside them, who will be eventually the high priest. He looks at this calf, and he said, these be your gods, O Israel. Here you go. Worship these gods. And he's appeasing the people. He's not leading the people. He's making the people feel better about the situation. He's trying to push it off. And by the way, let's always be clear on something. Just because you call it Christian doesn't make it Christian. Just because you call it godly doesn't make it godly. And many were coming in in our culture today and they want to call it godly. And by the way, we are so blessed in our culture today where we live today because we have the word of God to compare it by. When someone says, hey, we're worshiping God, then take the book and hold the book on them and see if what they're doing lines up with what the book says. And by the way, that's why I encourage you to bring the Word of God with you to church on a Sunday morning. To bring the Bible and you hold the book on the preacher. And hold the Word of God on what's being said in the pulpit. Because if what's being said in the pulpit doesn't line up with what's being said in the book, the book is right and the pulpit is wrong. And by the way, I also love the imagery of the pulpit. I like the pulpit center. I like it dead center where it stands. I like the fact that it's above the people. Because we set the word of God on this podium above the people, and the people sit beneath the text. And here's the reality this morning. If the man in the pulpit falls out, the word of God is still above the people. And we stand before the word of God, trusting that it is the word of God that leads us and guides us. And David, I love what your testimony said. It's just emphasizing the word of God and how it is the word of God that is our source of information and our source of authority and our rock that we build upon. This is the hope that we have. The word of God is what we stand on. And here, Aaron's coming along saying, these be your God. And he puts on this show. Moses up on the mountain, God gives him the word and tells him, hey, the people have defamed me. They've turned away from me. They've corrupted themselves, verse 7. They've turned aside quickly from the way I commanded them. They have made for themselves golden calves. 
God describes them as being a stiff-necked people. Even in verse number 10, he said, why don't you just let me alone and let me destroy them and I'll make a great nation out of you. In verse number 11, but Moses implored the Lord his God and said, oh Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people? Moses begins to intercede and then he's going to come off the mountain. He tells, he reminds God, he said, remember your promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And again, all of Moses' prayer is not about the goodness of Israel, but about the greatness of God's name. He is seeking God's name to be magnified. Don't let your name be defamed among the heathen. You told everybody what you're doing with this nation. Now don't let your name be defamed. Moses leaves the mountain and comes down. He confronts him. He confronts Aaron in verse number 21. And Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such great sin upon them? What did they do to you, Aaron? That you, would, that you would behave in this way to bring this kind of condemnation upon this people. And of course, I see a great contrast here. What do we see? We see Moses who's spending time with God, Aaron who's spending time with people. Moses who is interested in leading people, Aaron who is following people. Oh, Moses is following God while Aaron is following the people. Aaron, is, Aaron rather is impressed with his own abilities to craft this, this animal out of the gold and Moses is impressed with the power and the authority of God. Aaron refuses to rebuke sin but encourages it. He appeases. Let us not be appeasers. Let us stand firmly on what is right and wrong as we proclaim the truth and Aaron is appeasing the people, not drawing a line and Moses comes down and says, okay, who's on the Lord's side? Who's going to stand where God stands? Who's going to cross the line and stand on the right side of this argument? I think the interesting and most interesting thing here is Aaron blames the people and excuses himself where Moses intercedes for the people and seeks to atone for them himself. Such a contrast. And, and, and let me just say again this morning, as I said in the 9 o'clock, let, let us not spend, I think one of the evidences of our heart being in tune with who our Heavenly Father is, is that we become angry with sinners instead of interceding for sinners. Let's not be shocked that sinners sin. When you turn the news on at the night, guess what you have news about? You have news about a bunch of sinners doing sinful things because they're sinners at heart. And the answer is not the anger of righteous people. The answer is the grace of a holy God. That's what they need. And by the way, that's what you needed. The only reason you are where you are is by the grace of God. If, if, if God has given you grace to live a life that is pleasing to him, it is not because of you, it is because of him and through his grace that you know anything of living holy. He's the one that makes us holy, not us. And we stand and we look at a world, I can't believe they would do that. Really? You're shocked? Do you not remember the pit you were in before God dug you out? Do you not remember the wickedness of your own heart that's been on display? And here's the reality. I grew up in church. I've been in church all of my life. I know what it is. To, I don't remember when I learned Jesus loves me. I don't remember when I learned uh, John 3.16. I've just known them all my life that's been a part of me. But here's the, here's the stark frustration in me. I have had that beginning, and yet I know the wickedness of my heart. I knew better, and I still sinned. 
And if you grew up in church, I would say you have a greater responsibility because you knew better and you still sinned. Many didn't grow up around church. They didn't grow around things of God. And they're sinning and living a lifestyle of sin. We should have greater grace for them. Let us intercede on their behalf. Let us pray for our neighbors. And Moses, he goes to a place of intercession for the people of God. But as we know, sin has a sorrowful consequence. We'll see Moses' intercession in a moment, but his sorrowful consequence is on display. Verse number 26, he says, who is on the Lord's side? The sons of Levi gathered around him. They put on their sword. Verse number 28, and the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. Sin always brings death. Always brings death. That's why the resurrection is so important. Because sin is always going to bring about death. We see this sorrowful consequence. As sin promised hope, it promised direction, it promised life, and it always results in death. And God says, wait, and I'll give life. Sin says, enjoy, and it always brings death. And the opposite is what takes place here. Moses calls for them. God's judgment falls. I want you to see a silent cry. Moses goes to intercede for the people of Israel. In verse number 32, we see him going up. In verse number 31, we read earlier, Moses returned to the Lord and said, and so the picture here is that Moses is up on the mountain. God says, hey, they've messed up already. And Moses leaves the mountain and comes down. And of course, in our text, we didn't read it earlier, but he took the stones and threw them and the tablets were broken. And then he goes back up the mountain now to return to the presence of God and begins to intercede. And what does Moses say? Moses returned and said, alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for them gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin. And notice the long line. It's this long pause that we're given. It's like, what else do you say after that? Have you ever been there in your prayer? Or you're pouring out your heart to God and you just don't know what else to say? Or maybe your heart is so grieved over your own sin or the sin of our nation. And when you come to that place, there's just nothing else to say. What else do I say? What else could come out of my mouth? God, we have sinned. And it just hangs there for a moment. And I think what we see is what Romans described when he said, these are groanings which cannot be uttered as we come with a heavy and a grieved heart over our sin. And he begins to intercede for them. And look what he says. And I think maybe uh, Moses is revealing uh, his heart of desiring to fix this. When he says, but if not, please blot me out of the book that you have written. What, what's the call here? Moses is saying, hey, God, would you please forgive their sin? But if not, let me take their place. Judge me, don't judge them. Moses is starting to understand there needs to be a substitute for this wicked people. There needs to be somebody that takes their sin on them. And what do we see? We understand there's a prophet that's going to be like Moses that is coming, right? And here Moses is wanting to intercede. And what we see about Moses is that he was a willing sacrifice, but he was not a sufficient sacrifice. 
There is coming a sufficient sacrifice down the road. One day, through the line of Abraham, and the Bible tells us in Galatians, through your seed, singular, will all nations of the earth be blessed. And that seed was Christ. That he would come to take the place uh, of every man and woman and would die for our sins on the cross and would offer salvation to all who would come. And it's a free gift of salvation through the work of Jesus Christ. Moses offers to take their place, but he's an insufficient sacrifice. We see not only this, but we see not only a silent cry as he prays. God answers him and says, but the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out. Go now, lead the people to the place which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angels shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sins upon them. There was a day that God visited his sins upon man. There's a day of judgment. And 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ hung on the cross and he took the judgment of mankind upon him and he said, it is finished. God sends a plague. As we see that the penalty of sin and the consequences of sin are not the same. God takes the penalty of sin through his son Jesus Christ, but the consequences of sin still remain. And let me make something very clear. If we as Christians continue to persist in sin, then it is very clear we are under the bondage of that sin and we're obedient to a master that knows no mercy. And sin always brings death when it's finished. My challenge is this morning that as we live holy, we live holy understanding that God's boundaries are for our good, not for our destruction. So, the substitute conveyance is hinted at here. We're going to send somebody else in your place. He said in verse number 34, behold, my angel shall go before you. You know, if you're Moses, you might read that and go, hold on, that wasn't the plan. You weren't going to send an angel. And then we move into verse number 33, verse number 1 of chapter 33. And the Lord said, Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people, which you have brought out of the land of Egypt to the land which I swear to Abraham and to Isaac and Jacob, saying to your offspring, I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites and the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. And here's the statement that sticks in their heart. But I will not go up among you. And we have a whole culture of Christianity that says we want everything that God can give us, but we don't want God. I want what God, God, I want the milk and honey. God, I, I want the land. I want the promises. God, I want the nice house. I want the nice car. I want the nice family. I want all those things given to me, but I'm not really interested whether you go or not. And God says to them, hey, I'll send an angel in front of you. And here's what their response was. Look what he says. And when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned and no one put on his ornaments. They were so moved by this. Hold on a second. The deal was that you were going to lead us into the promised land, that you were going to go with us, and now you're not going with us. And they're grieving. We see a congregation that I believe is truly surrendered. Verse number four describes their Morning, they said no one put on his ornaments. He gives us in verse number five and six a description of what it looked like that Moses had said to, hey, it's time to get serious about our heart. And he said, you stiff-necked people, if for a single moment I should go among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. 
What's this picture here of taking their ornaments off? The idea is we see throughout the Old Testament that when someone is grieving over sin or getting serious with a holy God, they would rend their garments, they put ash upon their head, they would not wash their face, they would not wash their beard or anoint their beard with oil, they would do nothing to improve themselves. It would be the equivalent of you and I going days without a shower or change of clothes. It was the idea that we just allowed ourselves to be disheveled, and the whole purpose of that was to have an outward display of an inward brokenness. An outward display of an inward brokenness. And what we see is that the longer they did this outward display, it became like we always do, a religious act, not a spiritual relationship. And so they started, as we get through the Old Testament, they started saying, oh, we need to pray. So they put ash on their head and sackcloth on them, and they formalized this act of repentance, but there was nothing really going on in the heart. And we say this morning, if there's not some repentance going on in here, it doesn't matter what's being said here. Repentance must be something that has taken place in the heart. And I believe the people of God were truly mourning at this moment over the fact, not that they were losing milk and honey, not that they were losing the promised land, but they had lost the presence of God. And they found themselves in this place of mourning, and they began to pour out their heart. You know, there there needs to be a seriousness about who God is and who we are in light of our sin. Too much of what we do in the name of Christ is all about man And it's not about God. We put man on display. We put man on a pedestal. We see a solemn conversation as Moses goes back to the mountain. He goes back to, rather not to the mountain in this text, but to the the tent of meeting. And he gives us a little stop after verse number 6. So 7 through 11, he said, now here's the normal practice. He's going to give them the normal practice of how Moses communicated with God And look, if you would, in verse number seven, now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out of the tent, they would rise up and each would stand in his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. And when Moses entered into the tent, the pillar of the cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And all the people saw the pillar of the cloud standing at the entrance of the tent. All the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak with Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friends when Moses turned again into the camp. His assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. What do we see? We see this message of a solemn conversation. God spoke with Moses as a man spoke with a friend, but how would he do this? Well, here's what Moses did, and I think the progression is so important. Here the nation of Israel has come, and I told you at the beginning, no tabernacle, no temple, no altar, no brazen altar, no, uh, no mercy seat, no altar of incense, no labor, none of those things were given yet. And so he built a tent on the outside. The camp would be over here, and they were camped. They were not camping in order as they would eventually, but they were camping together in families and in groups. And the tent of meeting was on the outside of the tent, and Moses would come outside the camp and would stand on the outside of the camp and would go into this tent of meeting, and the cloud would come down in front of the entrance of the tent, and God would communicate with Moses, and he would talk with him. The Bible says here face to face and communicate with him. And let me, let me make something very clear. 
Moses didn't have greater access to God than you and I do. We, we see this intimate conversation. Man, that would be amazing if God would come down and talk with me at the front of a tent. But here's the reality. Every morning you wake up, you open his word, and he talks to you. And any time you need to speak to him, all you need to do is say his name, and he's listening. We have him as close as the mention of his name. And 2 Corinthians is very clear that if this this relationship, if this dispensation had glory, then our dispensation is of greater glory than they ever had here. We have direct access to God. Now here's how it unfolds, and this is what God is trying to show us. He's trying to get us to picture this. Outside in the tent of meeting, God met with him. And then we come into the next book of the Bible, which is Numbers. And what does Numbers give us? It gives us the specs for the tabernacle. It tells us all about the tabernacle. And yet when you get to the end of Numbers, the Bible says, but they could not go in. Or it, it's saying, I think the wording here is that Moses stood on the outside. And so how did they get in the tabernacle? Well, that's where Leviticus comes in. Because now we have the sacrifice. And so it goes from being this tent of meeting outside the camp to being a tabernacle inside the camp to one man, one time a year, being able to go into the presence of God inside the camp where he met with God. But friend, I got news for you. Because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, no longer do we have to have one person go on our behalf into the presence of God, but you and I have free access into the presence of God. And what is more than just having free access, the Bible says you don't need a temple, you are the temple of God. Because the Spirit of God takes up residence in my heart, and just like the Shekinah glory came down and sat over this temple, the Holy Spirit of God lives inside of every believer. And I think what we've done is we've blinded ourselves to the glory of what God has given us in the presence, and if we're not careful, we romanticize this back here, all the way back over here, where there was just a tent of meeting on the outside of the camp. But God has brought us all the way through the tabernacle, who are no longer are we having access with Christ, but Christ lives in us. His spirit abides in us. We are filled with his spirit. And so this picture unfolding, we see a tent was on the outside of the camp. We see the sacrifice was made, and now we're brought into the camp. We see Christ is our sacrifice, and we enter into the holy of holies, and we see that we are the temple of God. I want you to see a sound commitment. Verse number 14, we pick this up. I'm going to back up just a little bit in verse number 12. Moses said to the Lord, see that you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know who you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I find favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. He's reminding God of his promises. He's reminding God of the relationship. And he's pointing to the promises of God, not to his own merit, but to what God has claimed and what God has given and what is God's response in verse number 14. And he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Isn't it interesting that God connects his presence with rest? 
He said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And here's the thing, you and I are not cut off from that rest. We're not waiting for a priest to go into the Holy of Holies and atone. But the moment that I call on his name, he is present. And in that moment, I can have rest. When I see God for who he is, the holy, high and lifted up, powerful God, I can rest in the fact that he is in control. What can wash away my my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Who's holding me fast? He will hold me fast. And in his presence, I have rest. There's great rest in the presence of God. You think of the toddlers running around. And what, when they get scared, who do they run to? Mom. A, little, a lot less dad, right? But they run to a parent, right? And if mom's not around, dad will do. But they run. What do they want? What gives them comfort? Are they in any less pain? No. Presence. Presence. And they run into the presence of that parent and they find rest in the middle of the presence. Let me say this. Are you weary? Are you heavy laden? Tell it to Jesus. Tell it to Jesus and cast your burdens upon him for he cares for you because in the middle of the storm we find rest in his presence. And you're, I'm sure you're not near as bad a parent as I was, but on occasion when I'd be talking to the kids and trying to keep them with me, I don't remember who I, who I did this to, but I know I did it to at least Allie and TJ. Uh, we were mean to our older kids and nice to our younger one. Don't, don't laugh. You all did that, all right? You all did that, so... Um, Right, TJ? <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, but you got the little ones toddling around. But hey, stay with me, buddy. Stay with me. Stay with me. And then they would get distracted by something over here. And so I'd walk around the corner and just wait until they noticed I wasn't there. Dad! Dad! And I'm like, I'm right here, buddy. I told you to stay with me. You know, and now, that's probably not good parenting, all right? So don't take that, all right? Don't, don't take that and go do it. You know, I wonder how many times that we get distracted with other things and we wonder where God is. God hasn't gone anywhere. God is still faithful. He's the same yesterday, today, forever. But my sin has blinded me to him. This world has blinded me to him. He hasn't changed. And here's the wonderful thing. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we have fellowship. We walk in the light as he is in the light. We have fellowship one with another. And by the way, that fellowship that he's talking about in 1 John is not fellowship this way, but fellowship this way. Because this fellowship has to be in line before this fellowship ever works. And it's in his presence that we find that rest. He said, I'm going to go with you. I'm going to go with you into the promised land. And what a rejoicing it must have been in Moses' heart when he says, he's going with us. But Moses said, and in case you were wondering where I was at, God, here's what I want to say to you in verse number 15. And he said, if your presence go not with me, do not bring us up from here. Because God, if you're not going with me, I don't want to go into the promised land. I don't want milk and honey without the presence of God. I don't want houses and land without the presence of God. I don't want those things without him. But he is what I need and what I want. And friend, let me say this. When Jesus is all you need, then you have everything you need. He is all in all. And we rest in his presence. He said, I will go with you. We see the sober confession. See, I want to go where God is going. 
not where I want to go. You know, I think of our church and where God would lead us forward. And man, I, I'm hopeful and excited about what seeing God would do. And man, I have dreams in my heart of seeing maybe God using our church to plant a church one day in, in the not too far future. And, and seeing God raising up young men and young ladies from our pews. And, and maybe some older men and older ladies from our pews to go out and plant works. Or maybe be missionaries like the McFell Falsies who left when they are in their late 40s to go to mission work and do the work of God. I don't know what God would do, but I want to see God do a work work like that. And all of those plans and all of those dreams are exciting to me. And I can get wound up and let's make something very clear. If God's not going there, I don't want to go. I want to do what God's calling me to do. I want to go where God is leading us. And all of our plans, let them be defeated. Here's the thing we need to remember, and God's going to make this clear in a minute. He's the one in charge. He's the one that calls the shots. See, we move through our text here and I need to hurry. He says, if your presence go not with us, take us not up hence. Why? Because you're the only one that makes the difference. You're the only reason that we are unique at all. Look what he says. He said, for how shall it be known, verse 16, how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not that you are going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? What is he saying? It's not our style, it's not our worship, it's not our perfection, it's not our better than, the, uh, better than you attitude that sets us apart. And by the way, in New Testament Christianity, it's not the perfection of Christians that make them better. It's the presence of God working in sinners that show the world there's something different. It's broken people that need the gospel. They are one beggar telling another beggar where they found bread. And so often we get it mixed up and we're thinking, man, if we, if we don't put on our best front to this world, you know what the world needs? The world needs somebody to look across the table and say, I was where you are and the only difference between me and you is Jesus. That's the only difference because it's not about how good I am or how good I can be or how much I get everything right. No, I fail, I come short, I am weak, I am frail, but Jesus is sufficient and we run to him and we point the world to him. I see a sincere call in verse number 18. Moses prays still. Please show me your glory. And what a prayer. What a prayer. God, show me your glory. Moses is hungry for the glory of God. He wants to see it on display. And he says, God, show me your glory. God answers him and he says, I will make my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and show mercy to whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And what were my, that request, Moses is all the way over here at the tent of meeting. He's way, 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 way from the hope of the cross. He's standing way over here, and he's saying, Lord, let me see your glory. I want to see what's all the way over here. And he says, you can't see my glory and live. And he said, by the way, let me make something very clear who's in charge. And God says, I'll show mercy to whom I'll show mercy. I'll show grace to whom I will show grace. And none of my creation will say, boo, I'm God. And God puts his glory in the context. I'm not going to 
bow to you, Moses, and show you my glory. You couldn't handle my glory if you saw it. So what does he do? He said, here, let me do this for you. What I'm going to show you is my back. This is interesting to me, but it, it's consistent with Scripture. Look what he says in verse number next. He said, verse number 20, but he said, you cannot see my face and live, for no man has seen my face and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me. Somebody want to underline that. There is a place by me. That's good, isn't it? And he said, and you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand. And as I pass by, you will take my hand away, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. He said, you can't see my face on display. You can't see my glory unvarnished. He said, but I'm going to take you to a place by me, Moses, and I'm going to put you, I don't think it's a mistake that he says, I'm going to put you on a rock. How many understand today we see the glory of God because we stand on the rock of ages? We have our feet seated on a rock. And here he says, I'm going to put you at this place on the rock, and I'm going to put my hand over the cleft in the rock, and I'm going to pass by, and then I'll move my hand, and you will see my back. And it's exactly what we see in Isaiah. When Isaiah sees God revealed to him in Isaiah chapter number 6, and for five chapters we see him saying, woe unto you, woe unto you, woe unto you, woe unto you. And then we get to Isaiah chapter number 6, and he said, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And what does it say about him? And his train filled the temple. The train is the garments that flowed behind. He said, I, all I saw was his train coming through the temple and he said, and the, the seraphims were going around and they were singing, holy, holy, holy. And he said, when I saw that, I fell down and I said, I, woe is me, I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. And he just saw a glimpse of God's glory. Just a glimpse of the receding glory of God. He said, but you can't see my face. I got news for you. We have a greater ministry than the one Moses had. We have a more glorious ministry than the one Moses had. And I wish we had another hour. We would just go to 2 Corinthians 3 and preach that chapter right now. But we won't do that. 2 Corinthians 4. Let's look at that real quick. Turn with me if you would. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I was hoping somebody would say amen to another hour, but nobody did. So. 2 Corinthians 4. Look what he says. He's talking about this ministry. It, I, I wish I could go back into chapter 3. I'm resisting. If Moses had a glorious ministry, we have a greater and more glorious ministry than Moses ever had. Moses saw it with a veiled face. You and I are going to see it differently. Look what he says in verse number 6. For God who said, let the light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Moses couldn't talk with him face to face, but you and I look into the face of Jesus Christ. We, we look at the face of Jesus Christ through the pages of Scripture today, but one day I'm going to see him face to face. One day we shall be like him, for we shall see as he is. And you say, Pastor, what is God like? Then look at Jesus Christ, because what did he say in his ministry? If you've seen me, You've seen the Father. If you've seen me, 
You've seen the Father. You want to know what the Father's heart is toward a sinner? Look at what Jesus Christ has done. You want to know what the Father's heart is to holy living? Look at Jesus and you'll see what he is. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And you and I, every day, we're no longer back here in a tent of meeting on the outside. But you and I, every day, and he walks with me, and he talks with me, and I see Jesus face to face, and I walk with him to the pages of Scripture, and I call on his name, and he hears me when I call. What a message we have of the gospel. I'm so glad today that there is a place by him. When the storms come, when the wind blows, and for a moment as a pastor, when it's Monday and you think you did a really bad job on Sunday, and you're thinking, "Uh uh-oh, Sunday's coming again, and you feel the, ah, or when it's Monday for you and you got to clock into work again and you know the boss is going to be there bothering you. And when you get home, there's going to be the responsibility of children. There's the responsibility of bills. And the debts are heavier than you thought you would ever be at this point in life. And all of that begins to weigh on you. I want to say to you today, there is a place by him. There is a cleft in the rock that we run to and we are safe and secure, and he strengthens us, and in his presence, he gives us rest. Let me encourage you to run to him. Make it a priority. Friend, we cannot even walk without him holding our hand. I think of the story, I was a boy, I may have shared it to you before, I shared it at nine o'clock. My dad pastored in Hapeville, Georgia, H-P-E, not not Hateville, okay, um, it was not a, a ville of hate. It was Hapeville. It's just below Atlanta, right on the border of Atlanta. If you've been to the Atlanta airport, you've been in Hapeville. Um, part of it sits over into Hapeville. And uh, that's where my dad pastored for 12 and a half years at Victory Baptist Church. And my family and I actually, when we were in Atlanta this last time, we drove by the church and they just tore it down and replaced it with some apartment buildings. That was kind of a sad moment to drive by that. Um, but we pastored there in Hapeville, Georgia, and I remember uh, Dad often would take a school bus, and we, we, uh, we had many school buses through the years that we were there, but we had one old school bus, it was a Bluebird school bus, and it was actually a blue bus, it was painted blue, and we had that old bus, and we would drive it around the Atlanta area picking people up for church. My dad would drive that bus, and I remember getting on the bus with him on Sunday mornings and going all over the place picking people up for church. And man, it was an exciting time for a little guy my age. I was probably about five, maybe six years old. I got to ride the bus with dad, and this thing was huge, you know. And don't, don't tell the DOT but, in, in Georgia, but I used to sit up on the console beside him, and we would ride there next to him, you know. And uh, probably not safe, but, you know, car seats were like a suggestion, you know, back then. So, um, But I would ride with dad, and I remember one afternoon, that bus, it ran every other Sunday, and every other Sunday it was broken down. Uh, <clears throat> and we were driving home, and we had dropped the last person off, and uh, we were coming up there on Stewart Avenue, and I remember we were, Mount Zion was the road that took us to our house. Before we made the turn, um, the bus started stalling out, and it died, and we rolled it over the side of the road, and, and this is something you need to get in this context, too. There were no cell phones, Okay. This is before cell phones, so you, if you didn't see a payphone within 150 yards, you're just out of luck. You know, there's, what are you going to do? You know, you're stuck. So we start walking. That's what we do. 
we start walking home, and we had to go up Mount Zion, and I've driven this road since, and it seemed like a lot longer as a kid, but then we drive that road now, and it's just a few miles to the house, maybe three, and where we were living at the time, and so we started walking uh, down Mount Zion and over the hills and down under the bridge, and we're going to make a left-hand turn uh, on Waters Road to go to our house there in Atlanta, and, and I remember making the turn, and as we came under the bridge and started to make the turn, it started to rain and I'm just a little guy. We've been walking what seemed like to me about three days at this point, you know. And uh, I was just tired in the rain. I'm like, Dad, I'm getting wet. And I never thought of me that he was getting wet too, you know. That, that didn't cross my mind. And my dad wore a big old trench coat and long all the way down to your middle of your calves. He had that long coat on. And I remember Dad picking me up, scooping me up in one arm, putting me on his side and putting that coat over my head. And I just laid my head on his chest, and we walked the rest of the way home. And everything was warm. Everything was okay. As I lay there with my head on his chest, and I could hear the rain falling, but it wasn't getting to me. Because in his presence, there was rest. And I remember that so clearly, and I think God gives us those moments just as a window into what our relationship with our Heavenly Father should be. Because there's been a whole lot of Monday mornings where I've just gone to him with an empty heart saying, God, it's raining. And he pulls you up, puts you under his coat. The storm seems a long way away because God is the one that gives us rest. Let me challenge you this morning as the burdens come. As disappointments and failures mount in this old world, as the, as this this world would cause us to be in fear every day of our life. If we look at this world and the circumstances of this world, we would wring our hands constantly. We can climb up into the arms of the everlasting Father and have him cover us with his wing and nothing can get to us. What a Savior. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? Father, as we come to the conclusion of our message, Lord, I pray, Father, this not be the conclusion of our church service today, that, Father, you would continue to do a work in our hearts and through us. Holy Spirit of God, do a work in us this morning. Lord, I pray there be one here that does not know you as their Savior. Father, believe before they leave here today, they would settle that in their heart. Lord, I pray that you would open their eyes to the gospel. Let's stand to our feet if we could right now.